morning, Woodland Hills. You all look lovely this morning. Lovely. Are you happy to be here in Minnesota in November? Uh, the good news is it's only going to get worse. We are heading into our four months of gloom, so let us prepare. You really got to, Minnesota winners, you really got to grab tight to Jesus if you're going to make it through. That's good. It weeds out all the weenies. So it's just a strong stock that stick around here. Okay, so I have these gloves on because my hands get cold. I have a condition. I have to take this medication that makes my, my causes coldness in my hands. They get blue. So I'm wearing these up here because uh, they feel comfortable. And I know it's not very stylish, but I don't care. Forget style. Comfort first. All right. So, and then uh, you'll notice I'm wearing a belt. There's good news and bad news about this. The good news is that I washed my belt. <laughs> If you're, here, if you're here last week, you found out that I've had this for 10 years and I never washed it. So uh, if I smell different and better, it's because. The bad news is that I have to wear it again. I uh, was raking leaves this last week and uh, pulled that thing out, which was very discouraging. I'll tell you, I've been on, if you've been around here for a couple months, you know that I, I, in the summer, pulled my back out pretty bad. And it took me three months of physical therapy to get back. And last week, I was up on stage dancing around and just going crazy in the second service because we had such a wild service. And I had a clean bill of health, didn't have any pain. I was feeling great. And then raking the leaves. It, now, you might think that that doesn't speak very well for physical therapy. Three months of physical therapy, and then you, you jerk it out again. But it actually is a great confirmation on the value of physical therapy because the second I did that, I, I'm not kidding, I all of a sudden remembered there's one exercise I was given to do that I did not do. Uh, and it's where you put the elastic, you get an elastic thing, you t- to put it at the door, and you got to go like this, uh, like that, and strengthen that. Well, I lost the elastic band, of course, because that's what I'm really good at. I can lose anything instantly. And, and I lost it, and then I just kind of forgot about that one exercise. So three months of physical therapy, but nothing on the twisting end of things. So guess what? When you're raking leaves, boom, there it goes. The point being, I guess, that if you're going to get into physical therapy, you've got to do the whole thing. It's like, we, like the law. If you're going to be under the law, you've got to be under the whole law. Well, if you're going to get physical therapy, you've got to do them all. Because doing it partially does not get you what you want to get. You're vulnerable. So there you go. So I've, I've got a little bit of a back thing going on, but I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's a fallen universe. What else are you going to do? So we're uh, here in this 4D love, looking at love in four directions. We're to love as God pours God's life into us and love into us. We're to be secure in that love, trust in that love, and then overflow with that love towards ourselves, towards others, and then towards the earth and the animal kingdom. Encompasses everything that we're supposed to be about. Uh, And so today I want to talk about loving ourselves. Loving ourselves. And and loving ourselves has gotten kind of a bad rap in in some Christian circles. Uh, They have this kind of piety where it's like they think you're complimenting God by demeaning yourself and Oh, there's nothing good in me. I'm altogether bad. And they, they look down on loving yourself. You're not supposed to love yourself. And a lot of times we use loving yourself in, in a negative way. Like, oh, that person is so in love with themselves. Like, they're, they're narcissistic. So what does it mean that we're supposed to love ourselves? Because Jesus does say we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, which presupposes that we're loving ourselves. We're supposed to love ourselves. How can we not? If we're, if we're God's artwork, uh, how, how can we not love that? But uh, it all depends on what self you're loving. Well, who is the self that you're supposed to love? That's the question we'll be looking at here today. Which, which bring, brings us to the question, who are you? Who are you? Who is the self you're supposed to love? Who are you? Who are, who, who are you really? And so to kind of get, begin to get at that question, I'd like to look at a little clip from a famous uh, play, famous movie. I'm sure most of you have seen some version of this. The Lion King. This is the animated version. Let's look at that. All right. Lion King.
circle of life. I wish I had a voice like James Earl Jones. He always gets those cool parts. You know, Luke, I am your father. Simba, remember who you are. And that, what's the guy's name? That, that, that baboon, uh, Ricky, is it? Ricky? Yeah. Is that his name, Ricky? Yeah, Ricky. Look closer. Just look closer. What do you see when you look in the, the mirror of your brain? Uh, initially, Simba saw nothing. I wonder if you sometimes see nothing. Or you see kind of who you used to be or what you've been programmed to be. Who are you really? You know, I, I'm told that, that in some traditional African tribes, they, they actually have this practice. Uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, who spoke here probably 10, 15 years ago or so, um, she, she told a story about when she, on a missionary trip that she was on, there was this boy who, got, who, who was stealing something, and he got caught. And they brought him into the town square, the village square, wherever it was, and called the chief elder come to talk to this boy. And the, the chief elder in front of the, everyone who was in that marketplace at the time sat the boy down and begins to, to tell him who he is. You are the son of so-and-so, and he was, he, he was great at, at, at forging uh, tools to do uh, farming with, and his father was this and that, and his mother was known as, uh, as for her kindness, and you come from a family of blah, 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 and he, just, he tells the lineage, he just tells this person who they are and, and the, their family lineage. And in doing that, I mean, that could be a real, a real manipulative thing if you're like shaming somebody, like your big brother was way better than you. But, but in this context, what, what, what's, what, what the chief elder's doing is calling out the identity of that boy. You are this, which means you're not that. This is above, you're above this. This isn't like you to steal. You're of a different stock than this. And so you call out uh, the, the true identity of this boy in order to, to contrast it with his behavior. In order to say that this is, this is beneath you, you to move on. Um, so who is the you that you are supposed to love? Who, who is the you that you're supposed to see in the pond? Who is the true you? Uh, in, in the New Testament, it says this in Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul says, You were taught to put away your former way of life. And that's your old self. That old self that's corrupted and diluted by its lust. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourself with that new self. That's created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So who are you? Well, the New Testament says that there's two things that are true about you. There's an old thing and there's a new thing. There's this old self. And that's the self that you inherited from the world. Uh, that's the self that is composed of all the things that were said to you and done to you and the conclusions that you drew and all the experiences you've had leading up to this point. Uh, all the things that go into you being the experienced you that you are. Uh, that's your inherited self. You just inherit that from the world. That's your old self. But then Paul talks about this new self. Um, and this new self is created in the likeness of, of, of Jesus Christ. And it's something that we're to be putting on. Now, the old self is already there. We just have to put it off. So also the new self is already there. We just have to put it on. And we do that by the renewing of our minds. But there's this dual truth about us, the old and the new. The, the old that was in Adam, that's our old self in Adam, but now there's the self that we have in Christ. There's the self that we inherit from the world, and there's the self that we inherit from Abba Father. There's a self that has been corrupted by its uh, deceitful desires, and there's a self that is in tune with God. And our whole job in life is to be putting off the one and putting on the other. Um, so I'm going to talk about both sides of these selves this morning. The part one will be the old self. Part two will be the new self. 
Part one, this old self, I'll tell you, is not pretty. But we need to look at it. It's not pretty and it's not politically correct. Because to talk about this old self, you've got to talk about sin. And sin's not a very popular word these days, you may have noticed. It's kind of taboo. Uh, we're in a season where everyone wants to think that it's just, uh, we're sort of a, isn't it wonderful to be a human being sort of mentality? And, and aren't we wonderful? And let's just stay positive. And every kid should get a happy face on their chest, whatever grade they got. You know, it should always accentuate the positive. So we don't like this word sin. Trouble is, if, if you minimize sin, you also thereby minimize grace. And, 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 and uh, if you minimize sin, you end up with a gospel that's just sort of a self-help Pop psychology, moralistic, do good, something or other, whatever. Uh, no, we, we've got to take a good look at sin and this old self that was steeped in sin. Because until you appreciate the bad news, you can't fully appreciate the good news. Until you fully appreciate the depth of sin that we were in, the danger that we were in, until you, until you grasp that, you'll never fully appreciate the grace of God that freed us from that. You know, if someone stops you, stops by and helps you with a flat tire, you're a little bit grateful because that was a, a nice, the nice gesture. A little grateful. But if someone saves you from a, you passed out in a burning house and they risked their life and went and saved you, well, you're gonna have a lot more gratitude on that. Jesus said that the one who is who is forgiven little loves little, but the one who's forgiven much loves much. Well, I want to help us see here that we've been forgiven much. We've been forgiven incredible amount of debt that we could not pay in order to appreciate the grace of God that has now brought us to this new self. To, to understand the, the, the situation that human beings were in apart from Christ uh, and to understand the depth of our sin, you can't look at your own feelings. Our feelings are part of the problem. Our feelings are all jacked up. Um, they're no reliable guide to how healthy you are. Most people feel pretty good about themselves. But that doesn't tell us anything accurate about the situation we're actually in. We're actually in. I had a friend named Jimmy. He was uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, our, our guitar player had to move, and so we got a new guitar player. This is Jimmy, and he's an a incredible guitar player. Um, he's a big guy. He's about 440 pounds when he joined our band. Uh, played with us for about nine months, I guess, and we were just about ready to uh, start gigging, and by the way, all you ND, NDY fans, not Dead Yet fans, that's the band I'm in, uh, I know it's been frustrating, it's been a year now, it's over a year since we've had a gig, uh, it's coming, just hang tight, we're just getting a new guitar player. The trouble is, is this guy, Jimmy, he, he, uh, he joined the band, and it was going great, he's learning the songs, and he starts losing weight, and he's, he starts looking good. At one point I said to him, about six months in, are you, are you working out or something? Because you're looking thinner, you're looking really good. He goes, yeah, I feel great too, but I'm not working out. He said, I, it's weird, a couple months ago I got the flu and, and I lost my appetite and I've never gained it back. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound too healthy. Um, but I didn't say anything. About three, four weeks later he goes to the doctor, he's got a pain in his leg, and it turns out he's got cancer in his leg. And then it turns out he's got cancer everywhere. It's all over and they tell him, uh, our objective here is to prolong the quality of your life for as long as possible. Uh, he died three months later. He had just had cancer over, 47 years old. Just, um, here's the thing, he felt great. He, he felt better than usual. Uh, and yet he was dying on the inside. How you feel about something is not an accurate indication. It can be a sign that something's off, but it's not an indication. You know, the, the, the Nazi youth had the best self-esteem on the planet. The Nazis were really big on that. You're the Aryan race, man. You're superior. And the, 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 these kids had great self-esteem. They felt great about themselves that they'd be being trained in Nazi ideology. 
So their positive self-esteem was part of their sickness. And it's not a coincidence that in the New Testament, the people who feel the best about themselves are in the worst possible situation. And that's the Pharisees. Oh, they're righteous. They're holy. They're better than everybody else. They're close to God. Yada, yada, yada. And Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into heaven before you guys. So, so the, how good you feel about yourself is not an indication of, of how good you're actually doing. To know our real situation, both the old self and the new self, we've got to look not to ourselves, but we look to Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully human. And so he's the full revelation of God and the full revelation of, of what it is to be a human being. And, and, and so the cross, which sums up all, everything Jesus was about, that is the pond, if you will, the pond that we're to look into to see our self-reflection. And there we see a reflection of our old self and there we see a reflection of our new self. Uh, now, the, to, to know, if you're talking about your old self here, to know the, the, the condition you're in, you don't look to your feelings, what, what, to find out what your, your real situation, you want to talk to an expert, somebody who knows the situation well. And you'll judge how healthy you are by how the expert responds. So if Jimmy went to the doctor, the doctor said, well, we looked you over and take two pills and you'll be fine in the morning, that'd be an indication that Jimmy's doing pretty good. But when Jimmy goes to the doctor, and the doctor, after reviewing everything and doing all the markups and checkups and all that other kind of stuff, says to you, well, our objective here is not to heal. It's just to give you as much quality of life as possible for as long as possible. Well, when the expert says that, you know you're in trouble. So also, when we, when we look at the cross, we see what the expert thought about our situation. I know one thing about you. Everyone in this auditorium, you podcasters, I know one thing about you too. And it's the very worst thing that I could know about you. I know the worst thing about you, and that is that you were so far gone, so diseased, so sin-ridden that it required God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, becoming a human being, crossing this infinite distance to become a human being, and then crossing another infinite distance, if you will, to become our sin and our curse. That's as radical a cure as you could possibly imagine. God couldn't have done anything more than God did in order to save us. And so if the cure was that radical, if, if our disease required this much of a, this radical a cure, what shows you how radical our disease was? I know this about you. Your sin required God Almighty to die on a cross for you to be healthy. And the same is true about me, which means that we were in some serious, serious shape. And the New Testament just confirms this over and over again. I'm sorry, this is not politically correct. It doesn't go, it's not in line with the, isn't it wonderful to be a human being mentality? Aren't we all just wonderful? It's affirm everything about us. Uh, it goes against that, but I'll take the word of, the, of Jesus in the New Testament over the common reigning sentiment fad of the day, uh, any day of the week. Uh, let God be true and every man a liar. Here's what the Bible says, some of what the Bible says about us, apart from Christ. Paul says that we were, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. Everyone say dead. Yeah, yeah dead means dead. Uh, you're not going to get much out of a corpse. Try to have a conversation with a corpse, play checkers with a corpse, try to do anything with a corpse. You're not going to get anything because the corpse doesn't do anything. So also, it, when it comes to our being able to get rightly bonded with God, we are dead. We can't do that on our own. We lack the capacity. We're born corrupted in a corrupted world, and we lack the capacity to do that. We're dead in our sin. And then Paul goes on to say, there are none that are righteous. Righteous means rightly related to God. We are unable to get rightly related to God on our own. We must really be diseased. We're, something's wrong here. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And the glory of God is the standard, the brightness of God. Do not, compatibility with God is, is, is the requirement for entrance into the kingdom. And none of us can be rightly related to God perfectly. 
such that we'd get into the kingdom on our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are slaves to sin, Jesus says. Slaves can't free themselves. We're blinded by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. We can't just unblind ourselves. And in that state, we are destined for destruction. Over and over again, we hear this. It's not, it's not the good news, it's the bad news, but you'll never appreciate the good news until you appreciate the bad news. And the bad news is, we were on a course that was set for destruction. Uh, that's what sin does. It's not that God set us on this course. It's that we set ourselves on this course. Sin is inherently self-destructive. Because God is the God of life. God is life itself. Sin is, by definition, rejecting the God of life. So sin is choosing death. And we were on that road. We were in a dangerous, dangerous place, destined for de dis destruction. That's our old self, the self that we inherit from this world. The self that we got from mom and dad. All the things that were said to us, done to us, conclusions we drew of ourselves. That is our situation, dead in sin. And unable to do anything. That's what we're here at Woodland Hills, we, we just confess it. We're broken. Let's come clean with it. It's embrace our brokenness. Um, look, at the, the truth is, I mean, I, 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 this doctrine of that we're born, we're not born guilty, but we're born corrupted such that it becomes inevitable that we'll sin. On one level, I think that's a self-evident truth, isn't it? Don't we all know that we're all sinners? <laughs> if we're really honest with ourselves. You know, Jesus said we're love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. I don't know about you, but I don't do that 24-7. I mean, there's times where maybe I'm giving him my all, but I don't think I... I live that way. I'm just being honest here. And Paul says, whatever does not come of faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not come of faith is sin. Man, I'm a sinner. I don't, I, I don't love the Lord the God, my God with all my heart, body, soul, 24-7. No, it's, 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 it's not like that at all. Um, Jesus said, if you look at a woman or look at anyone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. He doesn't say it's as though you committed adultery. No, you have committed adultery in your heart. I will confess to you that I'm adulterer. Thousands of times over. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder anybody, but I'm telling you that if you say to, if you give an insult to anybody, call them a fool. Say raka, which is like flipping them a bird or something. You're already in dangers of fire of hell. Okay, that, that's the bar. Jesus said at one point, every careless word that you speak, you're going to give a counter of on the day of judgment. Well, if you want to stand before God on your own effort, good luck to that. But here's the bar you got to cross. Have you ever said a careless word? Have you ever judged anybody? Have you ever, ever lusted after anybody? Have you, ever, have you ever had violence in your thoughts towards anybody? That makes you a murderer. That makes you an adulterer. And we just here are just going to confess we're broken. That's just a, that's a starting point here. We're all broken. And, and, and see, here's the thing. The reason why so many people have buzzers about sin is that that word's been weaponized in some circles. Uh, maybe some of you come from religious backgrounds where they get tough on sin. They take sin seriously, not like those watered-down churches. And when they take sin seriously, what they mean by that is you take other people's sin seriously. Okay? And so sin becomes sort of the, the label that you accuse on others uh, to deflect it off yourself. Well, see, if, if you take sin seriously, I submit to you, the, if you really take it seriously, the last thing you'd ever be inclined to do is to judge another. Uh, the only sin you can possibly take seriously is your own sin, and then maybe the sin of a loved one who invites you in to help them with that sin. That's it. After that, you're allowed one opinion of people, and that is that you have to agree with God that they were worth Jesus dying for, which means you have to agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth. To take sin seriously, well, people who, who use it to judge others are not taking sin very seriously uh, at all. The, the last thing that should ever happen to us is that we think that we're in a position to, to judge others. No, we, we just embrace our brokenness. 
and, and see if we embrace that. The idea of judging somebody, it's like if you, if you take sin seriously, the idea of looking down on somebody or, or thinking that you're somehow more righteous or less wicked than them, it's like two people steeped into their necks in, in sewage arguing about who smells the worst. Oh, you smell terrible. You smell worse. Oh, yeah, well, at least I don't have a little fecal matter dripping from my nose. Yeah, well, at least I don't have it dripping from my ear. I mean, what is the point? <laughs> You're neck deep in, 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 in sewage. Who smells the worst is really kind of inconsequential. You both stink. That's all that needs to be said about it. We're all broken. Let's just say that. I didn't mean it literally, but... That, uh, <laughs> it's a good thing to confess. In fact, if you're going to confess it in a real Pauline way, Paul says, here's a, here's a saying that's worthy to be confessed of everybody, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy 1.15. So instead of looking down on others, what we ought to be doing is looking up at others. If you're all this neck deep in sewage, what Paul is saying is, no, don't look down on anybody. No, you confess that you are the worst of sinners. And then embrace this brokenness as we are. And when, 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 if we do that, you see, now we'll be creating a community in which we have compassion towards one another because we all know that we're broken, in which we are free to be ourselves, uh, and which means that we're free to have no hiding. If, in fact, we are a community of broken people who've just found a Savior, and we're all just in the process of, of, of growing, well, then we have a community that is without judgment, a community that is full of compassion, a community that where everyone is, is just as they are, a community where there is no hiding, and that is called the kingdom of God. So who are you? Well, look at the cross. And the first thing I got to say about you uh, as I look at the cross is that you're a wretched sinner and you're lost without Christ uh, in this world, and so am I. We all are in that situation. Grasp the, the severity of it. You, it doesn't feel that way to us because like the Nazi youth, we've been conditioned to see ourselves in a certain way, but it doesn't mean a thing. The one who knows us, the expert, tells us that we were in serious, serious, serious shape. But fortunately, that's not the last word. Because like Ricky says... Look closer. Look closer. If you look closer at the cross, you begin to see something else. Yeah, the, the, the cross, the ugliness of the cross represents the ugliness of our sin. It mirrors it back to us, and it's ugly. But look closer. Because what you'll see then on the cross is that if you look through that cross, you see that it is God himself, the creator, who stooped down, stooped this infinite distance to enter into solidarity with our humanity and then with our sin and our curse. God himself did this for you while you were yet sinner, while you were yet neck deep in sin. God thought that you were worth dying for. Which means that while you were yet neck deep in sin, God thought you have unsurpassable worth. And since God's the expert here, he's the, one who is, he's the only one who's on the inside who can really know this stuff. If God says you have unsurpassable worth even though you're neck deep in your sewage, well then you have unsurpassable worth even though you're neck deep in your sewage. You've just, you, you have that worth. God doesn't make bad decisions, and if God decided to give his life for you, it's because you were worth giving your life for. You have unsurpassable worth. Uh, it, it means that, that, that you are loved with an everlasting, perfect love. So who are you? Yeah, you're a wretched sinner, but you're a wretched sinner who's loved with an everlasting, perfect, unwavering love. You're, you're, you're loved with a love that embraces you just as you are. Which means this. Our motivation for getting out of our crap... And crap just sounds, is my little word for whatever ugliness you got going on in your life. Our motivation for getting out of that isn't to get God to like us, let alone to get God to love us. You, you, if that thought occurs to you, you have an anxious heart. 
Okay, you're bringing your anxious style relationship into this here. You're insecure about it. But if you understand the cross, no, we don't get out of our crap to get God to like us, to love us, to stop being mad at us. He loves us. The way it operates in the kingdom is God gives you the love up front, all the love up front. He gives you everything up front, and that's what drives you to get out of your crap. He says to you while you're in your crap, you are more than this. This is not you. This is not you. This is not what I created you for. This isn't your purpose. You're misguided. This is your old self. You're being corrupted. You're being deceived. No, no, I'm telling you, here's who you really are. You are the object of my adoration. You're the object of my love. God's love doesn't go up for you when you're cleaner, and it doesn't go down on you when you're, when you're, when you're getting dirtier. If that was the case, if that was the case, then what God really loves is not people. What God loves is cleanliness. And if people happen to be attached to cleanliness, well, then you're in. But if people aren't attached to cleanliness, well, then you're out. So God is just a cleanse freak or something, but he's not a people lover. But what the cross reveals is that God is a people lover. He loves people. He, he, it's the people that have got that intrinsic worth. They don't know it. That's why they act the way they do. That's why they think the way they do. But God knows it, and God believes that you're worth giving his life for. And not only that, but when God pours himself out for you on Calvary and gives you the love up front, he gives you every blessing there is up front. He doesn't wait for you to get your act together and then give it to you. When you submit to Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1, that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And that includes giving you a whole new identity. In Romans 4, Paul says that God calls those things that are not as though they were. And that's how he calls them into existence. He's talking about the creation here. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, and there was. And sometimes there's a process involved in that. Like when God said, let, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Well, that took some time, but God's word spoke it. And the reality is there from the beginning. So also, when, when, when you submit to Christ. Now, all that Christ accomplished is applied to you, and God says to you this new identity. Things like this. Let's just go over a couple of these. He says, you are God's beloved child. The New Testament says this. By the way, we've got a sheet out there that lists all these, these items of your self-identity. And I would encourage you to, to check out that sheet. Uh, get that sheet, take it home with you. I'll give you some homework on that a little bit later on. But all, all these are there with the verses in them. Um, but, so you're God's beloved child. Can you see yourself as this? Yes, you may be neck deep in your sewage. Maybe you are that right now. Maybe your life's a total mess. But you've got to know that that doesn't affect one iota, God's love for you. You're, you're God's beloved child. It's like, you know, Paul said that, that uh, the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that God has in store for those who love him. So here's the glory that God has in store. And, 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 and here's the sufferings of this present age. Put on this scale all the sufferings of this present age, the Holocaust, every genocide ever happened, every kidnapping, every mutilation, every rape, put, put it all right there. And what Paul is saying is that this pain doesn't even tip the scale, doesn't even register on the scale. It's not worthy to be compared. It, it, it's, it's as though it doesn't exist. Which is why if you're going to think about heaven, you just have to think about it as being more beautiful than you could possibly imagine because that's what it would take to render the sufferings of this present age inconsequential and unworthy to be compared. Well, in the same way, here is the truth that God speaks about us, who we are in Christ. And here's our up to our neck deep in sewage. And, and what this is showing is that all of this stuff that we have done, it's, it, by social standards, maybe it's huge, it's great, it's significant. You are a world-class sinner. Hats off to you. But even if you're a world-class sinner, it doesn't tip the scales. It doesn't register. It, 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 it's not worthy to be compared to the identity that we have in Christ. God's love for you, in other words, isn't tainted in the least little bit 
by what you do, what you think. What you, the value is intrinsic in you. You're made in the image of God. And, and that gives you your value. You, you, you can't destroy that. You can muck it up good, but you can't destroy that. No. When, 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 when you were passed out drunk last night for the 19th time after you promised you never would after your 14th recovery, God's love was perfectly towards you. And, and when you're stoned out of your brains, God's love was towards you. When you're cheating on your spouse, God's love was towards you. When you're lying, when you're deceptive, when you're being cruel, when you're being apathetic, God's love is still towards you just as much as if you were a saint. And when you begin to realize that, that's what will turn you from being the sinner to the saint. The love doesn't come as a, God's love doesn't become a carrot that we chase. Like, we've got to get this. It's going to be the reward after we do, clean up our act. God's love isn't the carrot we chase. It's the driver. That's why Paul says the love of Christ compels us. In the kingdom, that's the only motivation. It's not to get anything. It's to express what we've already got. And God gives us everything up front. So you are God's beloved child. You are Christ's dear friend. You are perfectly righteous. You're justified. You're rightly related to God in Christ Jesus. You're put in Christ Jesus. That means you're completely forgiven. That means the old is washed away. That means there's no more regret. There's no, no, no time for beating yourself up. Uh, you're freed from all condemnation. You've been made perfect forever. Now God speaks that, which means it, it's inevitable that you will become perfect forever. But your essence is that now. Okay, this is your true identity. Look closer. See who you truly are. You're made perfect forever. You're united with Christ in his death. Your old self died and you rose a new self in Christ Jesus. You're made complete in Christ. I'm not making this up. This is the word of God. And we either are going to decide to believe it or not. You're bought with an infinite price. You have unsurpassable worth. You are bathed with wisdom and understanding. You are inseparable from Christ's love. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. When you're bonded to Christ, that's an inseparable bond. You're one whose heavenly father and mother will never forget or forsake you. Simba, I will never forget you. You're one who makes God dance for joy and throw a magnificent party. You are the lost coin that God throws a party for. You are the lost sheep that God found and throws a party for. You are worth celebrating. You're one who ravishes the heart of God. You're sealed in Christ in the heavenly realms, far above all powers. You're a recipient of God's own eternal joy and peace. What do you look like when you really believe that you're a recipient of God's own joy and peace? Can you get an image of that? What do you look like? When you really know that you're God's friend, when you know that you're filled with the fullness of God, when you know that you're complete in Christ, when you know that you're indwelt by his spirit and given direct access to the Father by the spirit, and so on and so on and so on, I encourage you to go out there and get that sheet. In fact, if you're going to memorize anything in the world, memorize this stuff. Because here's the goal. Here's our job. Our job is to believe this. We've got a really important decision to make. The question, who are you, is inseparable from, inseparable from the question, who do you trust? Who do you trust? And your options come down to this. You can trust everyone that you've been trusting up to this point, your inherited self. Your inherited self with all the voices that go with that. The voice of mom and dad and, and, and the brother who abused you and sister and, and the, 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 the guy who humiliated you on the playground and, and the car accident and the rape and all the other stuff that went into forming your psyche as it is right now. You can trust that. But see, if, if you trust that, you will be, you're consigning yourself to being a footnote to every, everybody else's agenda for the rest of your life. The rest of your life will be living out all that you inherited from mom and dad, and for better or for worse, you're just going to keep playing those tapes. Because your brain goes on autopilot until you intentionally change it. So you, if you trust that, you, you're gone. You, you, the, your parents and everybody else who ever influenced you will determine the quality of your life. But I'm here to tell you that... If you know Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, if, if, if you know that you're a child of his, 
uh, then you are no one's uh, victim. You are no one's footnote. You have to be an extension of anybody else. If you know Jesus Christ, there's only one who's got the right to define you. And that is your creator, and that is your savior, Jesus Christ. And so it, 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 we either are going to decide to believe what we've inherited, and that's the easier route to go. That's what we usually do. We just default to what was given to us. We just run on autopilot. And so our lives, to a large degree, are simply an extension of everybody else's agenda that, that ever influenced us. You can believe that, or you can believe the expert. And the expert is God, the only one who really knows you. And he says that, yes, you were neck deep in your sin. It was serious. You're very, very, your old self in your serious situation. But because of the cross, now everything has changed. Everything has changed for everyone. Hallelujah. And, 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 and as a child of the king, you're not to be anyone's footnote. You're to be God's footnote. You're, you're to be expressing God's voice, not the voice of any other. So our job is to believe this. Now, to have faith in this. Not just to believe it propositionally, but to have faith in it. Uh, you know what the, the definition of faith is, if you've been here on your for any length of time. I go over it quite a bit, because it's so important. But here's what it is, 11, Hebrews 11.1. 1, the author says that faith is the substance of things hoped for or anticipated, and the conviction of things not yet seen. So he's saying this, faith involves seeing something you believe to be true, but you don't yet see. You, be, you believe it to be true, but you see it as a substantial reality. You substantize it. You see it concrete. You see it lifelike. And as you see that lifelike vision, it creates in you a conviction that it will be so. The word is elegkos. It will be so. And that's what motivates you to move in that direction. The beauty of the vision is what motivates you to move in that direction. That's what it is to have faith. So the question I'm asking is, can we have faith that what God says about us is true? Both for what he says about our old self, that we were really in as much danger as, as the New Testament presents us. But can we also have faith but what he says about us is true because of what he's done for us on the cross. Can you see yourself as uh, a, a friend of God? Can you see yourself as one who's been given a spirit, of, that not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control? Can you see yourself as one who just manifests the truth that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the, in the world? Can you see yourself manifesting a spirit of fearlessness because you know that the spirit of God is in you? Can you see yourself? What do you look like when you put on display the truth that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? What does it look like when you, have, when you really know that the joy and the peace of God is reigning in you and you're seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all principalities and powers? What do you look like when you've got the confidence of God running through you and the graciousness and the peace and the love of God running through you? Uh, the task, our task, God makes us our responsibility. He's changed our situation. He's changed our identity. What he doesn't change is our mind. It doesn't change our mind because he wants a bride who knows how to have authority, how to take back what belongs to him. He doesn't want to do everything for us. He wants to co-reign with us, which means he doesn't just want to monopolize us. And so he invites us to be partners with, with him. And, and now we're to use our say-so to bring it under line with his say-so that, so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the place to start with that is right between the ears. The first pot of land we've got to take back is the three and a half pounds of noodles uh, occupying our brain space here because that's the medium through which we interact with God, the world, and everything else. Uh, we'll only be as effective in the world as we are effective at bringing our, the kingdom into our mind. And so the Bible over and over again tells us what to think. Whatsoever things are good, Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are good and honorable and true and noble, think on those things. Which means if it's not honorable and true and noble, don't think on those things, which means you have the power to think about it or not. That's your choice. But this is the choice that we've got to be making as followers of Jesus all the time. I choose to think about what is true, and true as defined by God, not as defined by mom, dad, or anybody else who's spoken in my life. 
Let God be true in every person a liar. Let God be the sole determiner of, our, of, of, of the you that we love. And see, our, in, in having faith that, that we are, in fact, as God says we are, that's how we bond to that true self. That's the self we want to bond with. Velcro yourself to that. That's your true identity, the, the true you that's created in Christ Jesus. You don't yet manifest it perfectly. You're, we're all works in process, but, but you're, on, you're on the way. Keep going that way. That's the self you love. That's the self you bind, bond, bond to. Because of God's grace, we accept ourselves in process. We're all in, the, in process. We all have imperfections. We're not going to be beating ourselves up over that. But that's not the part we love. We don't love the, the, the negative parts of ourselves. We embrace it by God's grace. But the part that we love, the part we pursue in the, the, the trajectory we're on is that kingdom self, the true self that's created in Christ Jesus, who's, who's created in the image of God. You shine forth the radiance of God. You, you're a spitting image of, of, of God. When you are who you really are, and you shall be that someday. First uh, John 3 says that when we see him, we, it does not yet, it's not yet clear what we shall be. We can't get a clear conception of it. But we know this. When, when he appears, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Hallelujah. We shall be like him. And won't that be a glorious day? Amen? That's who we truly are. I encourage you, you know, everything I say here in the pulpit, it won't have any effect unless you do your homework. And so I'm always giving homework here. Here's some homework. Take that sheet of paper home. And now you might want to put it in your own words, however you want to, you know, whatever's comfortable for you. But I, go through there and, and, and read, read one of those truths and then see it. Read the truth and see it. See yourself as that. This is who, and affirm that. I, this is who I truly am. And it's especially helpful if you take, take the truth of who you are and now put it into the situations where you're least like that. Where are you the least Christian? Where are you the worst? Where does your negative side really come out? Who are the people that really know how to push your buttons? And in prayer, run previews, seeing yourself, the old self, how, how, how you have responded, but then see yourself now, imagine as concretely and vividly as possible, that's what faith is, see yourself responding in, in the Christ-like way, in, in, responding according to your true self. And run, you don't get good at anything if you don't practice it. And that's true for baseball, it's true of life. We need to be practicing this. If you can't see it in practice, you'll never do it in reality. But if you are regularly practicing it imaginatively, it's just, it's, it's just a matter of time before you'll find yourself doing it out in the real world. So spend time knowing your true self, uh, bonding with that true self, identifying with that true self, and then speaking that true self into your, your being here. In Jesus' name. All right. We're, we're going to uh, head to a time of communion. And, and at communion, this is where we really are just commemorating, celebrating, remembering who the true God is and who the true we are. The true God's the God who gave his life for us on Calvary. He thought we were worth it. He thought you individually were worth it. And so we want to remember that. The unsurpassable price that God was willing to pay for each one of us while we were yet neck deep in our sewage. And then we remember who we really are and what we're called to be and what we're called to do. Uh, this is our celebrating the covenant, the new covenant. He pours himself out for us to make us anew so that now we will pour ourselves out to him and to one another. And so as we take these elements, let's remember that. Remind ourselves of, of this covenant. The God who pours himself out utterly for us empowers us and calls us to be poured out utterly towards him and towards one another.
And that's what we're agreeing to by taking this communion. Now, here at Woodland Hills Church, we have open communion, which means we, 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 just don't, we don't do background checks. Jesus didn't do background checks at the Last Supper, so we don't do background checks either. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, we encourage you to come and join us in taking uh, these elements. Uh, all of it's gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. And we're just going to go into a time of worship. And so I encourage us to focus all of our mind, our imagination, our attention on the one who we're singing about. And fully into worship. And then when you feel ready, just go and stand up and go to the tables that are in this auditorium and, and take the elements. You can take it alone or you can take it with several others if you want to go as a group. Uh, we don't have a lot of rules around things like this. Uh, just, just follow the spirit here. Most importantly, let's stay focused because that's what worship is. Father, let your spirit descend on us here in a powerful, powerful way, making these symbols meaningful to us in ways that will transform us, help us to really concretely envision who you really are and what you're willing to do for us. Help us to concretely envision who we really are because of who you really are. And engrave this on our hearts in this time, sharing the Lord's Supper in Jesus' name. Amen. In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread that they were going to eat and he broke it in front of them and said, this bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. He broke it. So as often as you take this bread and eat of it, then do it in remembrance of me. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make on our behalf. And he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant, for this cup represents my blood, which is to be shed for you. So when you take this cup together, do it in remembrance of me. Uh, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. All of it is simply a way of pointing to the outrageous, outlandish, scandalous, beautiful, self-sacrificial love of God, which changes everything for everyone. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.